to the Better Golf Podcast, powered by Win Daily Sports, where betters go to bet better. Here are your hosts, Tee Off Sports and Sticks Picks. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Better Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Aguiar, and I'm excited to finally be back in studio with my man, Nick Brettwish, to run through the board for this week's Mexico Open. If you aren't doing so already, you can find Nick on Twitter at S-T-I-X-P-I-C-K-S. You can locate me at Tioff Sports. But it's been a few weeks since we have gotten to talk golf together, man. You had your honeymoon during the RBC Heritage. We both boycotted the Zurich Classic, which I do want to talk about Xander winning the week we decided to not film a show together. But how has everything been going for you? No, it's great. I, I enjoyed the time off. I missed it a little bit. I didn't miss the Zero Classic, but I'm so glad you brought it up. I was going to say the time we don't do a show, Xander finally wins, and I have zero dollars on the line. Um, I know he is the favorite and everything, too, but damn, Xander's so back, and I'm excited for that. That might be a little over the top at this. I kind of I didn't watch much of it, but from what I saw, it seemed like Patrick Cantley was carrying him a little bit. Uh, you watch more of the golf, I assume, than I did. Uh, what were your thoughts on it? I don't know. I mean, I hate that low scoring. I did really like the alternate shot. I think that's pretty fun. But best ball, just seeing these guys literally birdie every hole is not. I mean, it's impressive. They're obviously great players in the world, and especially what Xander and Cantley did on the back nine there when they just went absolutely nuts. But I don't know. It's not really an event that I like. Personally, I watch golf every single weekend. I did not watch a lot of golf that weekend. Yeah, it was nice to take a one-week break on the golf side of the equation. I could probably count the total number of events I've missed since 2018 on one hand, but I texted you on the Sunday before the Zurich that I wasn't a fan of creating content in any capacity for the tournament. I know neither one of us ever wants to provide written or verbal work just for the sake of saying we did, and last week was one of those random events where you weren't going to find much of an edge handicapping the board. It is hard enough to structure a model to fit the inconsistencies of one golfer, we don't need two random skill sets coming into play where a specific flaw of one player can cause mayhem for the other. So I instead spent most of last week handicapping for the NFL draft. I'll try to remember to talk about a few of my favorite plays for that at the end of the show. But to very quickly touch on Xander's win, his resume continues to become stranger by the second. I'll count his triumph at the Olympics, but six victories in total. He hasn't won a regular full field type event since that first title in 2017 at the Greenbrier. Two of the playoff losses on his resume have come in no cut shorter field setups. It's just a weird portfolio for a top 12 golfer in the world that has as many wins as he does. I don't really know if there's a reason behind it or if this victory changes the trajectory for him moving forward, but I haven't changed my mind about how I want to treat Xander in the outright market. I still want 30 to one or higher before I consider and it might be more challenging to get numbers like that after his quote-unquote win last week. But that's all I have to say, though. 10% of our show is typically me trying to talk you out of playing Xander, as you, for some unknown reason, tell me Webb Simpson is a bad play. But we thankfully don't have to deal with either of those two golfers this week in Mexico. I feel like I shouldn't be giving you an open platform to say negative comments about Webb and should have just transitioned us right into the tournament this week. <laughs> but is there anything else you want to talk about before we move on? No, I went off mute right away when you mentioned Webb Simpson. Are we done with him? Like, can we, does everybody agree? There's no upside. Well, you're, he's going to finish like 35th. I think that is the upside of modern day Webb Simpson. Uh, I did slowly uh, try to get streams when I was in Jamaica of the RBC. And cause I did have Webb Simpson in my main lineup that was damn near the nuts 
after day two, and then all hell broke loose on the weekend a little bit. Still was good, but yeah, I, I don't know. Just web doesn't do it for me. And I'm going to put that post-it back in the wall that I'll never play him again. I, I still like web at the courses that seem to fit web. Like this has just been a weird year with him through all the injuries that he's had to go through. I, I think when you put him at, you know, the Wyndham, when you put him at the Sony open, when you put him at the RBC heritage, typically, I, I think you're going to still be getting these high end results from him. And I hope from a DFS perspective, that means that we get a little bit less ownership than we typically have gotten. Um, I mean, cause as everybody knows, he pushes 30, 35% when he is informed. So I still think there's an edge to be had with him, but I guess let's move on to the tournament this week. That's enough talk about Webb Simpson in a tournament that he's not in, but Vedanta golf course, 7,456 yards, par 71 past Palm greens. There isn't a ton to talk about from a statistical standpoint, since the venue will be making its first start on tour. The lack of strokes gain data always puts us marginally behind the eight ball because both of us are extremely data driven, but I took a less inundated approach and instead simplified the process into what we can see and tangibly detect without pushing a preconceived notion that could be flawed. I always think you can approach events like this in one of two ways. You can either try to outsmart everyone and create your own blueprint for how to find success. That route has flaws without stats being present and feels like the boomer bust approach to the handicapping process. Or you can take the basic, easy-to-see information and extrapolate it out in a model. I will talk a little about how I did that in a second. But what are your thoughts about the property, and what did you weigh statistically for the week? Yeah, so my model kind of seemed to, when I kind of looked at the course and hole-by-hole and everything like that, it seemed to comp Torrey Pines a little bit, Bay Hill, and then the Corrales. So a lot of birdies, I'm sure, with the Corrales side of things. But um, yeah, dr- driver distance off the tee, long irons if you're not a long driver, and then approach and a little bit of putting. That's pretty much all I went into it. I do not have a big card this week. It, like No matter how much I want to dive into it, we don't know anything about this course. It's a very weak and volatile field. It's likely to be a birdie fest. There's elevation and everything. Like, I, I just... I don't think anybody like the more you look at, it, I think that you're going to be like, you know, paralysis by over analysis. And that was something I didn't really do this week. So it's a short card for me and I'm excited to hear your metrics. I know wind's going to be a factor as well. And I think that's something that played the Tory Pines aspect for me is, but I don't know. I don't like this tournament. I'm not really looking forward to it at all. I do hope John Rahm wins. I do not have an outright ticket on. There's just no value there, but that's kind of where I'm at this week. So the course underwent a 250-yard extension to get ready for the Mexico Open, providing us a slightly less than 7,500-yard total, and nearly 50 bunkers were added to the property and positioned to create a more challenging setup for an otherwise wide-open facility. The field will sense the entire measurement because the course plays at sea level, but the real difficulty will come down to how much wind is expected in the forecast. You can never entirely escape coastal gusts in these situations, but the winning score could shift by 8 to 10 shots because of that one factor. Past palm grass can be found throughout, and while that exterior typically yields this sticky, gripping texture that can slow rollout both on and off the greens, I have heard that the event will be trying to speed things up as much as they can on the putting surface. That doesn't mean we get a fiery test because this grass type will never produce that sort of golf, but I wouldn't necessarily be looking at how golfers putt on slower surfaces. It might increase some of the distance needed off the tee and provide a more significant emphasis on long iron play. But these are still easy to hit fairways that highlight second shot golf more than some bomb and gouge mentality. So with all of that being said, I started with weighted tee to green for 25%. That category has become prevalent for me weekly, but I did it in an even more enhanced and recalculated fashion than usual. 
50% of that total came from proximity, 175 yards and over. 35% took strokes gain total at courses over 7,400 yards that had easy to hit fairways with no rough. And then 15% looked in the sand safe percentage. To simplify that a little, the proximity totals replaced the approach numbers. I also didn't want to weigh off the T stats and instead took a recalculation of how golfers perform on longer tests with those easy to hit fairways that have no rough also. And because there are over 100 bunkers at the property and a good handful surround the putting surfaces, I felt like sand save was a better category to use than your standard around the green totals. To me, that was my way of trying to big brain the situation while still keeping it in a basic fashion that took information that wouldn't and couldn't be disputed. Gary Woodland was the number one player when I did that. And some of the notable climbers were Michael Thompson, Danny Lee, and Patrick Reed. I double dipped over the next handful of stats and looked in the strokes gain total at courses over 7,400 yards for 12 and a half percent and strokes gain total at courses with easy to hit fairways and no rough for 12 and a half percent. All of that is just trying to highlight golfers that have found success at similar courses in the past. I am not a comp course guy by any extent of the imagination because I don't think any two venues are exactly alike, but doing it that way allows me to condense what I like about certain venues and roll them into one easy to see total. Strokes gain total at easy scoring courses, seven and a half percent. That is more subjective than the other category since we don't know exactly how this might play, but the reduction down to seven and a half percent doesn't make a massive difference on something that I believe will still creep towards 20 under par. Uh, Nick mentioned the win strokes gain total and win for 10% and shout out to Matt Vincenzi for interviewing the tournament director of the Mexico open who stated win would play a factor during the afternoon waves for the week. I do admit that 10% is a lot, but it once again is important to note that it is 10% of the statistical portion of my model, which in turn is only 70% of the total weight behind my model for the week. Um, strokes gain total on Paspalum, 7.5%. For those keeping track, 50% of my statistical weight stems from past strokes gain total productions at these specific tests to mimic Vedanta. 15% par 5 birdie or better percentage. You could argue I should have attached more, but two of the four stretch over 600 yards. And then I wrapped it up with distance plus long irons for 10%. That was one of the reasons I didn't go higher on par five birdie or better percentage because I felt like I could find a roundabout way to include a lot of what will be needed on those holes a second time. And I took a 50-50 split from the distance and long irons to produce a new rank there. Top five of that model yielded John Rahm, Tony Finau, Gary Woodland, Matt Jones, and Abraham Answer. When running it for upside, Finau was first, Rom second, Woodland third, Aaron Wise fourth, and Abraham Answer fifth. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing that most of my model mimics the betting board. Um, you do get an outlier in Jones, but what did the top of the board look like for you, Nick? So it is a little different outside of John Rahm. He's going to be number one for anybody. I'm sure that prints anything this week, but Sebastian Munoz, number two, Gary Woodland, number three, Cameron Tringale, number four, my boy, and then Tony Finau, five. Yeah, I like Tringale a, a little bit also, and it's, um, uh, what did you like about Munoz? He's 15th for me overall. He's sixth for safety, so I don't have any negative things to say about him. I mean, the only thing, he's 31st from an upside perspective, but what did you like about him? His approach, weighted approach graded out very well for me and what I valued in off the tee. And then the around the green is actually solid too. So the putting is obviously always going to be a con concern for Seabass. But other than that, I uh, I like him. 
Sure. I think that actually makes a lot of sense. He's 10th in my model for distance plus long irons. He's seventh from proximity over 175 yards. He's inside the top 20 in my model for par five birdie or better percentage. So uh, really the only thing that brought him down, I guess, would be how he performs on easy to hit fairways with no rough. And the Paspalum is kind of a weird stat to look at in general, just because we don't have a ton of courses that go down that road. But if you remove the Pespalum from him, uh, all of a sudden he jumps to inside the top 20 on my model. So uh, you might be on the something there, but anyone else you were much higher on than their DK price? Uh, not really. No, not. I mean, I guess Aaron Rye, but his price is still pretty high. So no, not really. I don't think so. I had a bunch that stuck out that I'll quickly run through and, and get some of your thoughts on with it. But Matt Jones, 9,000 was the extreme climber. Like that's still going to be an expensive price tag, but for him to be top five in my model overall, that meant something to me where the most of the top of the board was pretty consistent with the market. JT Poston, 7,500, John Huss, 7,000, Alex Smalley, 7,400. You have guys like Danny Lee at 7,100 and Emiliano Grillo at 7,200 who would be GPP only, but presented upside at their price tags. I hesitate to say this one, but I don't mind Dart throwing Jared Wolf at 6,200. I don't have enough data to feel confident about the play, but the numbers were better than a $6,200 golfer through the 10 plus rounds I do have in my database. Again, I would be careful with that, but I do think he is playable. I really like Michael Thompson at 7,200. Their current form has been horrendous, but it's going to produce a sub 1% ownership total. As I said a second ago, he's one of the largest climbers in my model and reweighted T to green. Patrick Rogers, 7,600 is grading as a top upside target. And then the three additional long shots that I like this week are Vincent Whaley, 6,800, Nick's boy, Trey Molinax, 6,800, and Adam Shanks, 6,900. All three have this trajectory where they look like extremely intriguing GPP targets, but they do possess a high amount of missed cut equity to go along with the potential they have for the week. I know I just talked about a ton of names there, Nick. Did any of those catch your eye that you liked? Trey Molinax. But that's just me being a fanboy. There's a lot to like about Molinax, no matter how you look at it, though. Like, I mean, if you take away what he's done recently, which unfortunately is probably a lot of the times that you and I have backed him in the market, uh, he's 19th for me from an upside perspective. I think that he makes sense as an outright ticket. I've seen him as high as 275 to one. I think you can still find him around 200 to one at legal books if you shop around. I know the offshore market absolutely loves him this week. You know, at a sharper book like Bookmaker, he's down to 75 to one there. The numbers just look really good across the board. Like no matter how I run my numbers, he's 23rd in weighted T to green. Um, he's good in the wind. He's 12th there. He's fourth in par five birdie or better percentage in this field. He's inside the top 15 for distance plus long irons. And a lot of that's coming because of the distance. He's the third longest in this field, but the proximity numbers are completely fine. He's 28th from over 175 yards. I just think it's a really good setup for him where he can use his distance. He has the long irons that are not going to be dampened any by rough. That's going to cause him problems if he does miss the fairway. But I think he's one of like the better long shot plays to consider this week. I'm 100% with you. Yeah, the long iron play is something. Obviously, he's great off the tee, but his long irons are not that bad at all, especially with no rough, like you said. I uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. I don't know if I'm going to get there, but it, where was the 275 at? Uh, that was offshore when the week started. Um, 
so that would be that would I usually run numbers through bet three six five, which I guess does have some legal locations now also. Yeah, it looks like DraftKings for my state right now is the best at two hundred to one. You find value at two hundred to one? Yeah, yeah, I liked it. I, I ended up betting Trey Molinex set. I didn't for the record, I didn't get on top of it quickly enough to grab the two hundred seventy five to one either. I grabbed them at two hundred to one, so uh, I think there is value in that number. All right, I'm in. I punched it as we speak. So we are recording this a little earlier than normal. So Nick and I are both waiting on head-to-head prices to enter the market. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at BetterGolfPod. We will update some of our plays there as the week goes on. But do you have any golfers that you are looking to take on if the price is right? No, not really. Again, this this tournament, it, I have two placement tickets, three on honorable mention. I'm waiting for your uh, approval on and four outrights if we include I guess in five if we include Molinex and that's probably it for me until matchups come out let me rephrase that question then I guess to get it to at least so we get an answer out of it is there anybody on DraftKings for DFS I uh, maybe looking at their price tag or ownership yes, yes. I saw Austin Smotherman over 15 percent in ownership at 7800 I know I said I talked about uh, I kind of comped the course of Tory Pines and he played really well there. I I don't see it at all. So <laughs> if he's a damn near 8K Austin Smotherman, like if it, when I saw the 15%, I was like, okay, he's got to be 6,800. And I get that. I still wouldn't play sub 7K chalk or mid tier chalk and then below, I guess, is my new rule. But 7,800 for Austin Smotherman at 15%. That is going to be a hard pass. And then probably Mark Hubbard at 8K at right around the same ownership. Tyler Duncan. I kind of like Tyler Duncan. He's at 7,200. So a little bit different conversation. But yeah, ownership's going to be pretty wild this week. I do not think a chalky lineup is going to do very well at all this week because everybody's kind of shooting from the hip. I don't really understand what justifies Mark Hubbard and Austin Smotherman being two of the highest owned guys on the slate or two of the higher owned guys on the slate. That's, that's gross. I'm out. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that either. Um, like if we're just going through the DraftKings slate here of players that I am much lower on than their ownership percentage. I've seen a lot of saw hit the gala tickets this week. I don't necessarily want to play him. I mean, I'm seeing about 10% right now. Davis Riley around 10%. I'll probably pass there. Uh, I agree with you on Mark Hubbard. I don't really understand why he's pushing 13 to 15%. Like you might have a little bit of safety from him to an extent in this tournament, but I'm not necessarily looking for that as a 15% owned golfer. I, I think, think Hubbard makes sense for cash. I would Other men that. I don't think makes sense for any build at that ownership. Uh, obviously cash if you're going there, but uh, he doesn't seem like a cash play to me. Hubbard, I get, but still like this is a dude that's going to be 6,400 in any other tournament. So to just buy an absolute premium of 8K on a course he's never played before, I don't I don't really get it. But I know I, I like Hubbard more than the rest, I should say, but that's strictly for a cash game build. I would not put him in a GPP lineup. And if he beats me, he beats me. But that's if Austin Smotherman or Mark Hubbard beat me, I will sleep just fine. Yeah, in the $8,000 range, probably outside of Charles Howell, I don't think there's anybody that I have much interest in. Um, If we're talking specifically Mark Hubbard, he's 21st in my model for safety. That's perfectly fine. He's 72nd for upside. That's not the trajectory I'm looking for for a 13 to 15% owned golfer. Like, 
he can come in 40th place and that's perfectly fine. Like that's not going to kill us. And yeah, as you said with Austin Smotherman, that's a wild ownership percentage around him. I'm not really sure what's causing that because there's, I don't see much, I guess like the recent form is okay. He's made two cuts in a row. <laughs> it's okay. Yes, it is okay. Again, yeah. I, I like the fact that he played really well at Torrey Pines and my model seems to think that that matters to this week, but other than that, I have nothing to stand on for Austin Smotherman. Long I guess, irons, it, I guess he's good at long, long iron play. I knew that, but yeah, I mean, he could he should make the cut. Cool, but seventy eight hundred, I want more. It's the long irons and distance, but the problem is if you're only taking long irons and distance, and those are the only two stats that you're looking at, and everything else is looking suboptimal on it, that's not a great thing. Like, you, it's one thing if he's sixty eight hundred dollars and he's a couple percent owned, then it's like, yeah, sure, sure. take a shot on mm-hmm. him. I have no problem with that. But it's if he's 17% owned, and I do think he has some volatility to him, and I don't think the upside is quite what the general public seems it to be this week. I'd rather just miss out. If he beats me, he beats me. But I'm with uh, it. I don't think this is going to happen. I'll run through a couple right now. But if I'm looking for people to fade, I would love a borderline minus 110 number on Tony Finau over Kevin Na. I feel like this is an ideal course for Finau's game. I don't necessarily dislike Na but he would be my least favorite option of any of the golfers priced from Gary Woodland and above. I think Brendan Todd lacks upside because of his length. I will be looking for potential ways to take him on in the market. There is a plus 100 number on Charles Howell over him on DraftKings. I think that is off by 25 to 30 points. If the show had video, this would be a good time for Nick to throw up all the Charles Howell memorabilia I've gifted him. I know how much he likes him, and he actually does like him this week. Sitting right here on my desk, yes. Uh, And then I will give two group betting choices on FanDuel that caught my eye. These will be small wagers, so I wouldn't get carried away with them. But the first is Tony Finau, plus 430 against John Rahm, Abraham Anser, and Patrick Reed. It isn't the three opponents I would choose to select against him in a matchup. But Rom is giving us a boost for everyone else, which could become even greater if Anser is still not healthy. I have no reason to believe he's not. The only thing I would say is he has two withdrawals sandwiched in between the Masters, or outside of the Masters, I should say. Um, This is a tournament in his home country that he's not going to miss for the world. So I don't know where the health actually is. We could be getting a version of him where he's not as healthy as people believe he is. And then the last play is Chris Kirk, plus 270. Unfortunately, over Sebastian Munoz, which you have me hesitating on that one a little bit. I haven't officially punched that yet. Actually, against Aaron Rye also, maybe that's not the route to go down. Maybe you've talked me out of that. But <laughs> the the third option is Sahit Thagala in that group. I'm lower on Thagala and Rye than the rest of the market. I do like Munoz fine, uh, but my numbers at least believed Kirk possessed the best combination of safety and upside of the group and should have been the betting favorite. Like if I was to price it out, Kirk would have been the favorite. Munoz would have been second. Uh, Rye would have been third and Thagala would probably have been fourth. You could flip flop those last two in whatever order there, but anything else you want to discuss before we move into the placement bets or any golfers that you wanted to deep dive a little more? No, let's get after it. All right. So I'm going to start us off. Once again, we are going a little earlier than normal. So it seems likely I will probably find another player too, as I continue to run numbers on my model Stay tuned on Twitter for that. But the first play is Tony Finau, top 40, minus 150 DraftKings, minus 165 FanDuel. You don't see me going into this range very often, but it's going to be a very heavy Finau week for me. I'm trying to get as much exposure to him as I can. He's the only golfer in this field that ranks inside the top 16 in all statistical metrics that I ran. 
He's inside the top five for weighted tee to green. Strokes gain total at courses over 7,400 yards. Easy to hit fairways. Strokes gain total in the wind. Par five birdie or better percentage and proximity over 175 yards. I tend to like how his putting improves with greens that are a little bit slower. As I mentioned, I don't think these are going to be, you know, like so sticky because they are trying to speed them up, but it's still a past palm surface that's going to give you some stick to it. So I think he's going to be, a, you know, good with his irons. He can be a little bit more aggressive on his putts. And I think minus 150 is too shallow of a number in this field. Finau's a much better player than the general public seems to be giving him credit for right now. Um, he's a guy that a couple... I would say a couple months ago would probably have been minus 300 in this tournament. And I do think the form is turning around a little bit. So any thoughts on Finau? And uh, after that, who do you have first for us, man? No, I love Finau. I think you can get, you still get like 22, 23 to one out there in the legal market on the outright. So that's awesome. And the last time that we did eat the juice on a quote unquote stud player finishing top 40 at minus 150, yes was the start of Scotty Scheffler. So is this a start of Tony Finau starting to win tournaments? Yes or no? I, I kind of think Finau's going to win this tournament, so I'm going to say yes. All right. Well, I like it. We're one for one. That's a great sample size, everybody. So unload your bank account on <laughs> Finau to win because we've never lost when we took a player minus 150 at top 40 um, and outright, I should say, at that price too. So yeah. I'm rambling about who knows what, but Charles Howell top 40 on DraftKings is even money. My price in my model had him at minus 140. FanDuel's got him at minus 130 as we speak. Points bet has him at minus 143. We all know how good Howell is on easy long courses. Uh, six top 40s in the season. So the form is solid enough to where I like the pricing discrepancy. It's pretty much both of my tickets are just pricing discrepancies. And they're like, all right, they looked okay in my model. Um, Charles Howell was pretty high up there. He did crack the top 10 for me. Uh, and I will rally it real quick with my second play is Aaron Rye top 40 on DraftKings is plus 110. My model had him priced at minus 130. It looks like the market is exclusively set right now at Aaron Rye top 40 at minus 150. I certainly do not respect him nearly as much as the books do there, but I did like the course comp I mentioned about Torrey Pines. Aaron Rye did finish sixth there. Um, in a very strong field to be exact too. So I do like his spot here. The long iron play is very good. Elite approach player. It is a second shot golf course is what I'm hoping. And that is something that he's really good at. He did show the ability to handle the wind a little bit at Torrey Pines. So basically all of that with the pricing discrepancy of the market being at minus 150 and to get 60 points of value there on DraftKings was enough for me to get that one across the window. Well, you've talked me out of, I think the, Chris. I don't like him that much. It's just, it's straight. Like I have 20 points of, I guess 40 points of value on DraftKings there. But when I saw the market at 150 and I was only at minus 130, I didn't know if I was missing something there, but DraftKings surely is not adapted to the market, but they have completely different pricing for most of the books, which I like, like that is why we should have options and price shop um, to kind of, you know, call somebody's bluff. If I think DraftKings is wrong, I'm going to take the ticket there, but I didn't love this ticket. I just kind of had to get something for some content this week. <laughs> it, it's still enough though. I mean, like you had positive things to say about Rye. You had positive things to say about Munoz. I still believe Chris Kirk should be the favorite, but if you have multiple guys in that group now uh, for that group betting ticket, that at least that you like, like, I don't think it becomes such a great wager because you're kind of Probably Chris Kirk is higher in my model. Sorry to cut you off. So for whatever it's worth, I'm definitely with you on the Chris Kirk spot. 
it's tough in these group matchups. Like it's never the way I love to play them. Uh, ideally you want to have a couple guys that you want to fade. And, and for me, Aaron Rye, I, my model did not like him this week. He graded. I shouldn't say that it didn't like him. Um, did you say where he was on your model? Aaron Rye? Yeah. He is 19th and yeah, Chris Kirk's 13th. So again, like for me in that bet, if I had the Chris Kirk, I just wouldn't take it because I kind of like both of them. But I certainly like if I had to gun ahead, I would lean Chris Kirk for sure. I, I think the reason that I like Kirk is just because he was the underdog of the four choices. Like I thought he should have been the favorite. And if you're telling me there's 30 or 40 points of value there, it was worth taking. But yeah, I guess I'm not as low on Aaron Wright as I perceived him to be originally because he's 25th in my model. I'm not that far off from where you are. The thing is, is Chris Kirk is 10th for me. So that's where a little bit of the difference is coming, but uh, I will run through some of these plays that I have really quickly. So JT Poston top 40 plus 140 DraftKings plus 130 FanDuel. Poston has shown some life recently with back-to-back top 40 performances, and we have seen, you know, some massive improvements with him with his results. Anytime he gets venues that have easier to hit fairways with no rough, Poston ranks within the top 15 on Paspalum and par five birdie or better percentage. And while the irons do leave something to be desired, his weighted T to green number still received a 19 spot boost because of his strengths in other areas. We talked a little bit off the show about it. I know that you did not love Poston's approach numbers, but where did he rank in your model? For Poston? Yes. He was decently up there. Let me see. 21st. So yeah, not too far away from the Aaron Rye range. Yeah, he's 12th for me. I, I just have reason to believe that if he's always seems to play better on these courses that have easy to hit fairways, and we know the irons are a problem, that all of a sudden makes a massive difference for him, in my opinion, because maybe the irons just are a little bit better than you normally would see. Maybe he's not hitting the ball out of the rough as frequently as you know you would think that he might be in a certain situation with it. So I like Poston. I think he makes a lot of sense for a top 40 wager. And then I will run through all the rest of these. Uh, I do want to note that I don't know how useful it's going to be because they're all on books that are going to be offshore locations. And there's a reason why I'm doing it uh, just because of the volatility for the tournament. But Alex Smalley, top 20, plus 270 on Bovada. For anyone new, that is a site that pays ties in full. So I prefer it over the plus 320 price that you can find on FanDuel if you have options. But Smalley is one of the better upside climbers I have in my model. There's a ton of miscut potential when we look at his recent form, but the statistical makeup for Vedanta is incredible. He is 10th in weighted tee to green, inside the top 20 for strokes gain total at courses over 7,400 yards, easy to hit fairways, easy scoring, wind and pass palm. He's 12th in distance plus long iron play. Really the only red flag I can find outside of the form is the par five scoring, but one minor issue can typically get negated very easily. Danny Lee plus 350 for a top 20 on Bovada. For reference sake, it is plus 175 DraftKings, plus 165 FanDuel for a top 40. But it's a similar spot to Smalley where I just want less risk on a volatile option that I think possesses top 20 upside. Lee has struggled some on longer courses, but the rest of the data looks good. He's 49 spots better in my reweighted T to green stat, second on Paspalum, and is also inside the top 20 in birdie or better and long iron plus distance, which might be able to mitigate some of the issues he's had at longer courses since the rough is not as penal. Kind of the same exact thing I just said about posting. Like I'm trying to find the same skill set over and over again. Michael Thompson plus 325 for a top 20 on Bovada. 
I'm more inclined to play this in Lee at plus 175 on DraftKings for a top 40 than the Smalley wager if you don't have access to the book. But I don't necessarily trust any of these golfers, which is why I'm trying to be more aggressive and bet on the upside and not be as punished if the downside comes into play. Thompson looks to be probably the best sub 1% option on DraftKings because he does have this top 20 potential at no ownership. And the fact that he ranks fifth when I recalculated my T to green stats compared to his 71st place mark otherwise is very enticing. And then the last two I will mention, Trey Molinex plus 475 Bovada for a top 20, Adam Shank plus 350 Bovada for a top 20. You can find both of those at plus 210 on FanDuel to come top 40. As I keep saying, my goal this week is to find random shots down the bottom of the board and play it a little bit more aggressively. But uh, I've gotten your thoughts a little bit on Molinex. Anybody that we missed, any of those plays that you like? Here's a, well, I got a couple honorable mentions for you. Perfect. Joseph Bramlett on DraftKings top 40 at two to one. The market seems to be at right around plus 155 range. My price is plus 125. So I did have some value there. Uh, Pat Perez plus 135 on FanDuel. My price was plus 100. So even money. And then I did have Smotherman, but we already talked about him. I think if anything, I like again, I'm not worried about his chalk, but I may get a little exposure to the top 40 market just to have that box checked. Um, because you know, he is long off the tee, his long irons are really solid. So, um, I do see a little bit there, but again, at 7,800 DraftKings, not where I want to go. But thoughts on top 40 market for Bramlett, Pat Perez, and Smotherman? I'm not going to talk you out of either one of those two plays. So, with Bramlett, I have a proper price being. I think you said you had it at plus 125. 125, yes. That's exactly where I have it also. So I think there's some value there. The only negative I would say about Pat Perez is I do think you get this boomer bust approach with him, which I mean, for that reason, he's another guy that fits into that like top 20 range better than a top 40 bet. I'd rather bet on the upside of him there, but the numbers look incredible. Like when you look at how he fits on this course, he improves in weighted tee to green by 14 spots. He's 13th on courses over 7,400 yards. He's third when it's easy to hit fairways with no rough. He is 12th on past Pollen, which might honestly be a little conservative on that number. I think if you stretch it back a little bit further than I ran the data, he's even better than that. And he's inside the top 20 on easy scoring courses. So I think Perez has like legitimate upside in this tournament. That's more of the reason why I would say play it as a, you know, maybe a top 20 if you can find or an outright because I have the outright or an outright. I think an outright, <laughs> I don't have an outright on him, but I did consider it. All right. Well, I'm glad you're on the same page then. Let's move into the outright market. I think that's a good segue into that. But uh, I missed the Tony Finau 30 to one number that was on DraftKings for a very short time period. I did grab him at 25 to one before that last move to 22 to one. But we're starting to push things a little bit if we go lower than that. Like I, I'm fine with him at 22. I think he's still in play there because he possesses upside in this particular field, but that's probably about as low as I would play him. I think once you start going lower than that, you're taking a little bit too much risk into play. And then of the boomer bust options that I mentioned in the placement section, I took Danny Lee, 150 to one on DraftKings, Alex Smalley, 90 to one on FanDuel, JT Poston, 100 to one on DraftKings, Trey Molinex, 200 to one on DraftKings, Michael Thompson, 150 to one on DraftKings. I still have room to choose a couple more names if I want to add them because I pretty much have one legitimate option and then a bunch of guys over 100 to 1. I might add Pat Perez so I don't regret the decision. I think I'm going to jump on that play with you. But uh, what did you like, man? 
I have Aaron Wright seventy to one, and I hate it. I just think it's a it's a waste of money. But I already punched it earlier this week, so I have to be transparent. Cameron Tringale thirty seven to one on FanDuel. I like that a lot. I wish it was at forty. I believe it was earlier in the week, and I kind of just sat there and looked at it. Um, so don't do that if you like a guy. Take it early because that's usually when the value is. Pat Perez ninety five to one on FanDuel, and Trey Mullinex two hundred one DraftKings live on the show. Well, I will add the Pat Perez 95 to one ticket live on the show so we can uh, exchange those two plays there. Perfect. And then it's likely Tony Finau. I will find, I think 22 to one was the best I saw today on DraftKings. I'll probably do that, but I am going to shop around offshore to see if I can find something a little bit better. I'm not 100% sure. I, I believe 22 to one might be the best price. You can always find books that are slow to move on the offshore market or even just in the legal side of the books too. Like if you have enough locations at your disposal but yeah for the most part 22 to 1 is what i'm seeing also but anything else you want to talk about before we let everyone get out of here no i uh under 40 minutes today too this is big stuff well i have one more thing to add which will probably take us over 40 son minutes son of a bitch <laughs> go what's up oh yeah I'm the doing- nfl the nfl we uh we gotta talk about the pick you found i like that just very quickly i want to talk about a couple plays in the nfl market i mean if you think we're talking about golf movement here the NFL draft movement, it's like nothing you've ever seen before. Like you got to jump on these things because uh, like by the time this show airs, I don't even know how actionable some of this data is going to be. Like I texted Nick on, I don't know when that was Saturday, maybe talking about the wide receiver prop that I had found. I don't even think that that's available at any of the books right now. And I will mention it very quickly just because I think that there is still value on it. So if you have a book that's slow to move, I'm fine paying the minus 300 minus 400 juice on over five and a half wide receivers. I legitimately believe that there will be five wide receivers at a minimum off the board by the Packers pick at 22. I think the Cardinals very likely take a wide receiver. I think that gives you your sixth wide receiver. And then you still have the Chiefs in play with two picks at the back end of that round. You have the Packers, you have the Titans. You have a lot of options. I think six is the minimum. I think seven is in play. And I think, I mean, there is some world that you could potentially get eight out of it. Um, if you only have an over and under of six, I think you're kind of free rolling the situation where the worst case scenario, you're getting a push from it. I would prefer the five and a half because I do think it's 95% to win. Unfortunately, one of the plays I was going to give has just been steamed to no other. I mentioned it yesterday on Twitter, but Derek Stingley under nine and a half. Uh, that was at minus 140. I even kind of like it at minus 200 if you are laying the juice there. I think we've reached the point that Stingley is either going third to the Texans or seventh to the Giants. And the worst case scenario, his floor would be Seattle at nine. So I think that you have a winning wager there, no matter how you want to look at it. And then the one that I do want to talk about, because at least as of an hour ago, it was still up there for the Houston Texans to take a defensive back with their first pick that is plus 300. So my mentality has changed a little bit on this market of what I think is going to take place. I think the first pick is going to be Trayvon Walker. I think the second pick is likely going to be Aiden Hutchinson to the lines. I think because of him being able to stay home and go, you know, stay in Michigan, that's going to be a reason why they take him. He does have some injury concerns and some red flags that are coming into play. It wouldn't be a total shock if he falls a little bit lower than people think, but now you're left in this spot at three where in my opinion, the Texans have a couple scenarios that they can go here. You have the two cornerbacks of Stingley and Sauce Gardner. They could go offensive line and take a guy like a Quanu. I don't necessarily believe they're going to do that. It is in play. That's probably the most likely option if this bet doesn't win. 
And then, sure, I mean, Thibodeau has some chance to be picked there, but they don't seem to like him. He doesn't seem to be a fit for the franchise. So in my opinion, it's either Gardner, Stingley, or Aquanu. And if you're telling me two of the three choices are defensive backs there, plus 300 is an absolute steal. And if you look throughout the market, he is in the minus range at a lot of places uh, for them to be taking a defensive back there. So there's a lot of value there. And then the other play, if you can find it, Quay Walker to be the second linebacker off the board at six to one odds. That's a market that's been moving very quickly. I think Devin Lloyd will be the first linebacker off the board. I think he either likely goes to the Eagles at 18, the Patriots at 21. Uh, But now you're left in this really weird spot where there isn't a second linebacker that necessarily is going to come off the board. It could be Walker. It could be Nicobe Dean, but Nicobe Dean, his juice is shooting the wrong direction there. So I think at six to one, Quay Walker is probably better than 50, 50 to be the second linebacker off the board. So I think there's a lot of value in that number. If you can find it at any, you know, realistic plus number. I love it. Great Intel, man. Thank you, Nick. But uh, let everyone know where they can follow you and we'll uh, we'll wrap up the show. Yeah, it is at Sticks Picks, S-T-I-X-P-I-C-K-S. And let's go. Good luck this week. Enjoy the show and enjoy the draft. Yes, you can find me on Twitter at TF Sports. As Nick said, you can follow him at Sticks Picks. The two of us can be found together at Better Golf Pod. And if you have any questions about the tournament, please feel free to reach out to one of us at those handles. We're just over 40 minutes. We almost got there. I tried to almost. super speed we did. through it at almost. the end. If you take some of it out, maybe that of a couple of the things we said, we can get under it. But good luck this week to everyone at the Mexico Open, and we will see you guys back here next week.